Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. Things are warming up down under, and we have a great show for you today. If you watch as much tennis as we do, you're about to see and hear a lot from today's guest. He's a fixture on the tennis channel, but that's just the beginning. As a pro, he beat McEnroe, Connors, Edberg, and Vlander in singles. In doubles, he won the Australian Open. As a coach, he's worked with Sloane Stephens, Roger Federer, Tim Henman, and Pete Sampras. Currently, he's working with Taylor Fritz, a true insider. This guy is full of good advice and sage wisdom, and he's gonna share it with us, Paul Anacone. Paul's gonna tell us what he learned from Pete and Raj and Sloan, why he's bullish on Taylor Fritz, and how he juggles his obligations at the Australian Open. We met up with him at the USTA Training Center in Carson, California, just before he shipped off to Australia. But before we jump into our conversation with Paul, a quick bit of housekeeping. This is the last week to enter our Invesco Series giveaway. Send us an email, tweet, or DM, and we'll enter you to win a VIP package to the Invesco Series event in Newport Beach, January 26th. Practice with Andy Roddick, Tommy Haas, James Blake, and Marty Fish. It's an awesome event, it's a ton of fun, and it's a special experience. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more info. We're on court eight in Carson, California, at the USTA training <laughs> facility. We are we are deep, and we're here with Paul Anacone. How are you, my man? Good. Thanks for being so patient. We've been trying to do this for a while. <laughs> I, you know, I met you in 1990, probably 1997, but in 1998, there was a moment <laughs> where I won a tournament with you and Pete. These guys I was working with, Pete, came and we were doing those rackets. Uh, we won Philly, we beat Thomas Anquist in the final. And I think we might've won San Jose too. I don't know. I, no, I do, I no, do. You do. Okay, I you do. Know. Okay. yeah, I was with you guys. I, I, okay, I yield to your memory. So since then, you've done a lot of different things, man. Yeah, no, half tongue in cheek. I keep saying I've avoided real work for so long. Why should I stop now, right? Incredible. Playing, man. coaching, and a couple tennis industry business author, things. Author, author. Author, that's right, yep. Coaching for life. <laughs> Go grab it, Amazon.com, iRebooks.com. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Shameless get, plug right there. No, we're going to get to that, <laughs> okay. though. You can't come right out of the box with that, man. So we do a, a five-set format. Our first set, we call this the off-the-court report. Australia's right around the corner. Uh, catch us up. What are you doing? I'm actually, um, I've been lucky enough to be broadcasting with Tennis Channel for about four years. Um, I do some coaching with Taylor Fritz. Taylor Fritz, young, young American. Do you do some coaching or are you his coach? No, no, David Nankin's his full-time coach. Okay. David Nankin does all the hard work um, and you know me for a long time, so I grab the glory. He does all the hard work. And then Dave, when things go bad, I say, Dave is just not doing a good job. David Nankin, <laughs> uh, South African, he was a player. Yep. Um, and he is part of the USTA High Performance team. He and, is. And he is Taylor's attached coach. Yeah, he's Taylor's full-time coach. And David runs the show here for the USTA at the Carson facility. He is absolutely invaluable. I wouldn't be able to do what I do if it wasn't for him. The guy's been around a long time, so, coached a ton of players, and we work well together as a team. And it's good for Taylor because we're kind of a unified 
voice, which is really important for a player not to get a lot of different ideas. Are you discussing stroke production and strategy? Or are you really kind of prepping a tournament mindset? Well, it's a little bit of everything, right? We're just wrapping up preseason. So this preseason was a lot of strength and conditioning. Taylor's 21 years of age, still has to get that body into a mature, physical athlete's body. So he spent a lot of time with Brent Salazar at the USTA who runs up the strength and conditioning. Brent does a great job. Taylor was in Orlando for a couple weeks, does a strength and conditioning, then comes back here. We talk preseason, you can do a little bit of everything without worrying so much about the psyche of the player, right? Because you have some time. So we do some technique, some stroke production stuff, work on simple themes and ideas that match the player's game style. And now, since he's just about ready to start playing again, now it's more about strategy, about how you play. So you kind of go through a little bit of a uh, chronology events leading into how you're gonna play the matches, and the preseason's the best time to do all of it. Why does he lose matches? Well, you know, he's done a great job. Last year, he started 2017 at about 105, and he finished at 49. So he had a big jump last year. Um, and I think he did a terrific job last year. He's one of, you know, a handful, half a dozen or so top kids his age that are breaking into the upper ranks. I really enjoy his mindset. He's one of the best competitors out there. Um, he's not afraid to win. He's not afraid to lose, which sounds simple, but in today's day and age, you don't get that too often. He loses right now, really, because he's still developing. Mm -hmm. He's still a kid. He's 21 years of age and has a lot of weapons, and that's what I like the most about him. He's got a lot of macro, uh, big picture potential that if he's patient and works smart and hard in a couple of years, he's going to be one that everyone's going to have to deal with. You're bullish on him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be a very good player. You know, you're clearly a man of many hats. You're a broadcaster, you're a coach, but what else are you doing in Australia? I do some consulting work for Craig Tiley, who's chief executive of Tennis Australia, which is set up just like the USTA, uh, community tennis, performance tennis. Paul Anacone, worldwide yeah. consultant. Yeah. Yeah. He's not just with <laughs> the Americans. Yeah. And that's not your first rodeo. You, We're going to get to it later, yeah. but you were, you were with the LTA as yeah, well like, in England. Yeah, jack of all trades, master of none. You know me, Craig. <laughs> and, uh, but so, so it's, a busy, it's a busy time, but a great time. I love Australia. I love the tennis stuff. And then Australian Open is when my role at Tennis Channel kind of kicks in down there. And, and what a way to start the year. For me, it's always exciting because there's new players, there's new horizons, and you get to see how everyone starts a year. I mean, it sounds like you have a lot of obligations um, while you're in Oz. How do you juggle all these things? It's pretty seamless. I mean, I actually have, I work for and with great people. Uh, people at Tennis Channel, you know, giving me my schedule. And, and when I know that, then I, I navigate around that to figure out when and how to manage my time with David Nankin and Taylor Fritz. Right. And then my affiliation with Tennis Australia is mostly conference calls, phone calls, strategic planning, and a few different meetings throughout the year. I kind of pride myself on being prepared and ready and managing a calendar that makes sense, that things can yeah. be practically applicable. And you do a great job in the booth. Um, I don't think there's any more insightful, dignified, smooth-talking broadcaster on the Tennis Channel. How do you keep your energy here? That, that's my biggest thing, and luckily I've got great bosses and producers and directors and, and co-workers, because I can have a flat affect, right? Because a lot of that is about coaching, too, because when you're in the box, coaching box, I don't think you should be all be over smooth. the I think so, because yeah. I don't think 
you know, and so I have to make sure that actually in the booth that I let the energy come out at the right times. And that's what's, that's actually much easier for me because I'm into tennis. I'm passionate about yeah. it, you know. Paul Anico, man, he's not <laughs> fist pumping in the box. No, but, but when I'm he watching. He tries to bring his energy up and, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and when I'm at home and I see big things happen, it's exciting. So for me, I have good people that help teach me. And, and that, that allows me to learn and try to get better at all the things I'm trying to do. Uh, moving into our second set, we call this our On the Court Report. And I think we should start with what you're thinking about moving into 2019. It's the dawn of a new day, and uh, we should start with the women. What are you looking forward to? I mean, tell you what, it's been an amazing time, right? As we've seen the evolution of the women's game and also of the great Serena Williams, right? Becoming a married woman, becoming a mom, and now trying to have the delicate balance of gee, how do I dominate this sport when I don't play that much, still take care of my family, still take care of my professional life? And, and look, she's amazing, but just by virtue of Serena not playing as much, there's been a little bit of a vacuum. You know, there's been a vacuum of someone able to take that mantle and being the driving force. So for me, that's exciting. I think maybe um, 2019 is a year that Serena will, will be way fitter and Maybe she'll bump her schedule a little bit. Maybe she'll play more. I'll be interested to see. I mean, look, she's been through an unbelievable she, amount. In the she last. didn't play any tennis no, last she year. Really man. Played, she just showed up. She played so little and was still right there when she played, right? And it's now crazy. she's got a little bit of time. She's had a good off season. But look, let's not forget what Simona Halep did last is, year. Is that a fact? Is she, has she had a good offseason? Well, do, do your sources, do you know that? Well, only from what I have been told and from what I've seen, she's doing just fine. But again, at this well, Who stage, tells you things? Like, who do you speak well, with? Well, you look at... Our show's an insider show, well, well, so we well, want to Well, know. now it's really simple, right? I mean, social media you stuff. Go on you the go on pa pa Patrick Moritoglu's, but you see what he's doing. You see, yeah. you know, Serena's been doing uh, a, a lot of good work. But my question... Really, it's not so much at this stage in her career about what she can do. Does she emotionally have the drive where she wants to do it consistently? And it's the same with Federer and Nadal. I went through it with Pete. At the end of the careers, for me, the mental leads the physical for the great players. How much are you able to unconditionally do everything you need to do to dominate? And Serena, for me, is such a tremendous athlete. She absolutely can if she wants to, but how much does she want to do that? And, and when segueing from there to the other players, Craig, you look at Simona Halep, you look at what Wozniacki did last year, Angie Kerber coming back and playing great tennis, uh, Sloan's doing great, Madison Keys knocking on the door. There's still some folks that are wrestling for that mantelpiece. I felt like Madison Keys had a very iffy year. I, I was kind of thinking maybe she'd break through, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, what do you think about Sabalenka? What do you think about Kasatkina? Like, I think that maybe the dawn of the new day, maybe maybe Sabalenka is going to just start blitzing everybody. Um, it could be. I mean, you look at Svitolina as well. There's, there's a lot of great players. I just named a handful. And when you mention Madison, it's very interesting because her, her ceiling is so high. That's why we've all been waiting, the power game, the ability to hurt anybody. And I think her consistency has just fluctuated a bit. Someone like Svitolina, um, someone like Kazakina, that is very cagey, uses athleticism, variety, and shot, they're going to be a little bit more consistent a little, a little earlier on. But I look at someone like Madison that at any given moment, when it clicks in, she gets comfortable. She can knock anybody off the court. Well, she just murders the ball. Right, huh? yeah. 
I mean, she's an amazing player. And look, I mean, I think Sloan's really matured incredibly well. I look for her to have a great 2019 as well. She is such a tremendous athlete and can do so many things at such a high level so easily that if she's clicked in mentally and emotionally, she's also going to be tough to deal with. What are your sources telling you about how she faded out uh, Kamau? Her coach. I, I, I really don't know. I, I, do, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. And, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe it is all I've seen is that they're taking a break. And, and I don't know what Quote, that means. taking a break. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what that means. And I know Kamau's got other business interests in Chicago. He runs a, yeah. a great program there in Chicago that he opened up a little over a year ago. So I don't know what the situation is. But I do know. Could be dollars and cents. Could... Uh, I don't. I mean, I, I would doubt that. But I would think it's more about kind of. Uh, an evolution of a relationship as well. Because look, I've been through those too. Sometimes it just, at the end of the day, there's not a good or bad or right or wrong. It's just sometimes these coaching relationships run their course. That's I was going to ask you about that. Um, same thing with Kerber. She won Wimbledon and then she deaded her coach. Um, and then Venus ended David Witt. Yeah, it's well, That's that was, again, that could just be, they've been together forever. That could just be, you know, just ran its course. The one with Kerber is a little bit, trickier. Wimfacet. You know, Wim's done such a great job with a lot of different players, but also been dismissed after good years. That happened with Joe Conta. She had a very good year, and then Wim stopped there. And then Angie really helped Angie get back on track, and now that stopped again. So that, to me, is more puzzling. I don't know the inside scoop. Um, You must be trying to get the big money. Once once I get down to Australia and hang around the locker room, it's amazing all the information. Yeah, yeah, sure. But look, a, a lot of it, too, one-on-one sports, Greg, so different coaching than a team sport because you have to learn how to integrate yourself and manage uh, and be malleable. As Look, my coaching philosophy is very simple. How can I say what I need to say the way the player needs to hear it? And every player's different. So you got to figure out how to manage the personalities to get your message across. And when it doesn't, the relationship, no matter how good you are, is going to be short-lived. Man, I need to take you around with me wherever I go <laughs> with that kind of advice. <laughs> now, um, the men. Let's go to the men. Uh, what do you, you think is going to... Well, let my, I'm going to ask you a question. How, how long have we been talking about, geez, Vetter and Dandal, these guys are getting old. There's going to be... Are they going to slip? You know, we've been talking about that for a long time, right? Well, I think that at some point every dog has his day. You know, I think Roger's going to have a tough time winning tournaments. But I like to drive the questions. What, okay. what do you think? My, my thing is this. <laughs> I, I think greatness does not disappear. And the older the player gets, the harder it is to sustain the greatness. You know, I, I don't think Roger is going to have a hard time playing well periodically. I think he's going to have a hard time playing well from January to November. And that's one of the reasons why he takes breaks. But also, as you get older, it's been my experience you have to find that balance between staying away long enough so that you get refreshed, but not too long to where you get rusty. And that's difficult as you get older. Roger's been able to do that the last couple of years pretty miraculous, miraculously. Now for Rafa, he's had some injury stuff that's happened this year and in the years past. So Rafa's had a bit of a break. So you wonder... Well, Rafa won the French and he barely played a match, right? Right, right. And then you wonder, you know, is Rafa's body going to hold up? And Rafa pulled out of almost every single yeah, tournament. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what's, you know, what we haven't talked about, which was, has been, how about the, Novak was spectacular. I mean, the first four months of the year last year, I was like, 
is this guy gonna get it in gear again? It's crazy. And then from Wimbledon on, he was incredible. So now incredible. Novak is the guy that they've gotta knock off the mantle. So you talk about those three, the three icons, that two of them are questionable. And and Novak is the man to beat. And then you look at Andy Murray, who's trying to get back. He with looks the a lot stuff. fitter on, on but the But I just don't know what he can do with his hip. I, right. Again, I don't know if he can. Again, I think he can do things periodically. I, mean, DC, I don't know if he can do yeah. it over the whole year. In Washington D.C., I mean, it looked tragic. Yeah, him playing. I it's, couldn't you know, even believe he was on the court. Yeah, but he works. So he's going to do everything he can to give himself the chance. So you have those four guys: Stan Wawrinka going through the kind of the same thing as Andy. How healthy can he be? So you take Stan Wawrinka with a knee. That, right. uh, couple of that, surgeries a little over a year ago yeah. that he tried to battle his way through last year and getting better. He just completed his offseason. He's getting ready to start the year. And then you have the young guns, right? Sasha Zverev, he's knocking on the door, just hired Lendl. I thought he hit a different gear at the ATP yep. finals. I, I agree. Scotty and I were there, and, and um, he beat Roger and Novak in back-to-back that days. That doesn't happen and much. It was unbelievable. He was serving 142, man. Right. Incredible tennis. Yeah, he averaged over 135, I think, against Roger serving first <sighs> serves, and he played unbelievable power baseline tennis. And I think that could be a catalyst for him to now believe in the three out of five set matches where he has struggled in the majors. Got to his first quarter last year in a major Roland Garros, but he hasn't had spectacular major results. But he's the one right now that's closest to knocking on the door. But then Borna Cioric, just outside the top 10, and uh, Stefano Tsitsipas as well, really splashed onto the scene last year. So those are the three youngest guys to look at this year, yeah. but there's so many of them. I mean, you, you look at Shapovalov, you look at Francis Tiafoe's big year last year. I think Taylor's in that conversation. There's just a large group of guys. And if Nick gets it together, and forget Nick, about well, it. Well, Nick Kyrgios, you know, look, we've been guessing for a number of years. Again, it's, uh, it's up to him. And when he plays well, he can take the racket out of everybody's hands. Is there anyone we haven't, we haven't heard the name? That Is, is there somebody going to roll up on us? Well, we didn't mention, he, he's not going to roll up on us, but we haven't talked at all about Karen Hatchinoff, right? Hatchinoff. He, he, won, he won Paris and he, he hit Novak off the court. He's another six-foot-five strong athlete, can absolutely break the tennis ball. He looks like he could play ball. pro football. Right, man. yeah. So look, look for him, um, and, and I think he's going to be one of the guys, uh, Daniil Medvedev as well. Um, what is what, what do you think uh, is special about Medvedev? Medvedev is so awkward. He's a six so foot five awkward. gangly guy yeah. who keeps the ball low out of your strike zone, makes it very difficult to attack him because of how he hits the ball to you. You watch his shot production, and it looks like he should miss a lot more than he does. He doesn't um, really miss, but he doesn't miss that much. So, uh, you know, look, there's always. You know, there's always questions and question marks, but I think that grouping of those players, I'm sure there's a couple that we haven't talked about, but it's an interesting time. I, I'm, I'm always curious in January in Australia, and I'll look at this, what happens at the beginning of the years with the young players and what happens with the old players? Do the young players start to believe? We saw Young Chung last year in Australia beat... Uh, beat Novak, and and, and, he and, got this, hurt. and then he got hurt and had to retire against Roger. So there's these guys that kind of can set a tone that they believe and belong at the elite level. And then we mentioned the older guys. How is Ro- Roger had an average year last year for him? 
for well, him. Well, you know what? Roger had match points on Delpo and Indian Wells, and it almost seems like it really carried into the rest of his year. Yeah, just, I mean, he he didn't play badly, but for him, he no, played level, okay. I'm being very harsh. No, no, but blow, look, those but... guys know it. They, they're their own biggest nightmare because they're their own measuring stick, yeah. right? I mean, and I went through it with Pete for so many years because, you know, with Sampras and these all-time greats, they measure themselves by themselves. And and so it's always, you know, there's only one place to go from how good they are. And that becomes a very difficult conversation, especially that that's what they have to answer to every single time they sit down in a media room. Paul, what are some of the nuances of Australia that can kind of make it or break it for a player, depending on how they deal with it, uh, weather, Australia, Australia is the laid back slam. I love going down there. The country and the people, they love tennis. And historically, the passion's incredible. But for the players, Craig, it's really about the, um, the climate. I mean, in Melbourne, it literally can be 68 degrees at... 9.30 in the morning and 115 at 4. And then dip to 53. Right. It's, it's very so crazy. So crazy. And so you think, oh, it's just hot, cold. But what that means is it's not only uh, training and it's not only body acclimation, but the ball reacts totally differently. The cold weather, it's not going to be as quick on the court. Hot, it can go really fast through the air, skid through the court more. So there's a lot more adapting to things like that down in Australia. And I think the other nuance too really is it's a first major coming off the off season, right? They've had a little bit of a break, so we're not so sure how everyone's gonna do right at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I think that as an aside, I don't know if you'll chime in, but you can run the risk of continuing your vacation. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yeah. fun there too. Right. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> it's hard to jumpstart it, but you're right, it's beautiful country. People are amazingly open and welcoming, great restaurants. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot uh, of fun. Great scenery. It's an awesome place to be. So it is a great place to start the year, but there's still a lot of question marks for everybody. Well, you got to put your you got to put your hard hat on and get exactly. to work. Exactly. Yeah. Bring hard. your lunch pail. <laughs> yeah. So listen, I don't describe you as a doubles expert, but you certainly had incredible success in doubles. You won the Australian Open. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about doubles. What do you think about doubles in 2019? How do you not start and or land on Mike and Bob Bryan? I mean, the, the you know, they've carried the mantle, broken basically every record in the doubles record book. And they've carried the flag for not only doubles, but for tennis. I mean, these guys have been amazing throughout their career in terms of dealing with fans, 100%. dealing with sponsors, no dealing with resp- and doing it with a smile on their face, doing it with passion. So for me, I mean, I, I, I really am mostly just hoping for a healthy Bob Bryan. Bob Bryan, he went down with a hip injury, I think in Rome, that looked terrible, and he was in surgery within. And, the and week. you know, but but he's starting up again. I hope Bob can stay healthy. Obviously, Mike had a pretty good year last <laughs> year with Jack Sock. They had a great year, winning a couple majors, and and well, I, I and the and they won the Masters. Yeah, and and I, I just think you know when you look at the doubles, it's such an interesting kind of transitional landscape, right? The doubles guys fortunately and unfortunately get to try things out, right? The match tie break, no ad scoring. So they're the innovators to the tour. And look, let's be honest, what do most club players play? Everyone's doubles, playing doubles. Right? The interesting thing now, Craig, which is one of the reasons why I think Jack Sock 
is modern day doubles player number one, is that he can serve in volley, but he also can serve and stay back and use his big forehand. We're seeing new things in doubles that didn't happen until really kind of four or five years ago. And yeah. now you're seeing one up, one back. There's a lot of different formations that doubles players are using. And so when you throw that into the Bob and Mike Bryan conversation that they've also been able to kind of weather this change of how doubles is played, how about that? How about 100%. those guys adjusting to that? So, they've been on the tour for 20 years, man. <laughs> it's, ama it's amazing to watch. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens this year and which teams dominate, but it's hard to bet against Bob and Mike. Uh, moving into our third set, this is this portion of the show. We talk about your career. And I, I found this on the internet. I'm just going to read it. This uh -oh. is from, like, the East Hampton Star, the <laughs> newspaper. It says, while he lost rather badly in the final to Tim Mayotte, Paul Anacone, the East Hampton reared, touring tennis professional who lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, last week enjoyed two wins over top ten players, Jimmy Connors and Brad Gilbert in the Chicago Volvo Tournament. Anacone's father, Dominic, who is superintendent of Sag Harbor Schools, said his son's ground strokes, which were weak in the final, were strong in the semifinal match with Gilbert. <laughs> Following his brother Steve's advice, Anacone forsook, forsaked, for, it says forsook. Is that a word? Ship in charge <laughs> tactics against Connors, whom he had never beaten before, in favor of staying back, at times even on his serve. The strategy worked. So I, I mean, I don't even know what to say. Everything, about that. well, everything, <laughs> everything's relative, right? I mean, everything's relative. Good ground strokes for Paul Anacone is a relative term. Um, but you grew up in the Hamptons. I'm going to assume that our listeners know about the Hamptons. The Hamptons is the end of Long Island, New York. It's uh, become a place for New Yorkers and people from all over the world to pop in for the summer and and and, and kind of rock it um, and relax and and. It's a wealthy part of the world. How do you, how'd you grow up in the Hamptons? Well, my man? parents were school teachers, so I was one of the seven people that lived out there full time. Back you're in the like, day. A, you're <laughs> one of the people that were there year round. Yeah, so I was born and raised out there, and it's a beautiful place to raise a family. Um, great quality of life, very community oriented. Um, my parents being in school systems, my mother coming from a local family out there. Um, that's where my roots were. Your local are. yokels. Yeah, and and so, but I had to make a hard decision when I was 13 or 14 to move to Florida to go to Ball Terry's. Oh, you did? Yeah, because I I couldn't. The nearest indoor club was 35 miles away. But it says you graduated from. East I Hampton. came back. I came back the last six months of my senior year to graduate with my friends, and so and then I went to University of Tennessee for three years. But so hold on a second. So is it true that your parents had a have a piece of a of a of a tennis club? Did you grow up at that club? So my that... dad was a manager of Bridgehampton Racket and Surf Club when I was a little kid. My dad was was an employee there for a bit. So where did you learn your tennis? Well, actually, I learned it uh, from my parents and from my first tennis coach, a guy named Whitey Jocelyn. Just out there. Yeah, no, Whitey's actually, we met, <laughs> this is the Paul Anacone uh, biography. I, I lived in Puerto Rico when I was six, seven, and eight years of age, and Whitey taught me how to play when we were on a U.S. Air Force base there. 
And then when I moved back to the States, I just started took, taking it up a little bit more seriously. Would go to Whitey's house in the summer in New England, play junior tournaments there. And it's just, it's all kind of a fairy tale from there, Craig. This is the Paul. <laughs> so he didn't know we were going to dig so deep. And what was your Bulletary experience? It was like? awesome. I mean, Nick is still one of my dearest friends. I wouldn't be where I am today without Nick for what he taught me in tennis um, as a tennis player, then as a tennis lifer about how um, actually to transition from on the court to off the court. And the biggest thing Nick taught me is a resilience, the ability to deal with res resilience, the ability to deal with adversity, to understand opportunity and how to look at that in an optimistic way and to use, use your experiences in terms of understanding accountability and responsibility. Those things, people don't talk about that with Nick much, but for me, that's what he did for me. The tennis stuff was secondary, it was extremely helpful, but those things that I mentioned pushed the tennis stuff. Who were you battling with there? Terry, you ready for these names? Jimmy Arias, Rodney Harmon, Mike DePalmer Jr., Pablo Araya, yeah. Eric Corita. Eric Corita. How about those names Eric right there? Eric Corita, one of the one most of the, famous servers. Probably the best service motion yeah. of all time or top five. Eric Corita. I think you won a tournament with him. I'm sure I did. He probably held me up on the doubles court many times. Yeah. And Jimmy Arias, uh, Jimmy Arias was really the first breakout bulletary player. After Brian Godfrey. Brian was oh. first, and then Jimmy Arias oh. was a, a top fiver. As Brian's career started coming down, Jimmy jumped onto the screen, and he doesn't get nearly enough credit because everyone talks about Andre and Courier yeah. and the guys after us. Um, yeah. But Jimmy Arias was top five in the world. This guy launched, I think, Nick Bolletari's career. 500%. Yeah, Jimmy with was... a big forehand. He was amazing. And yeah. he launched the Bolletari forehand back in the day. That's right. And at, you know, five foot... 10 standing on four phone books, Jimmy Arias yeah. <laughs> got into the top five in the world with tremendous grit, uh, a huge forehand. A in an era backhand. where he's playing guys like Lendl and Yannick Noah yeah. and just huge athletes. Um, and so Jimmy's still one of my dearest friends and I think he uh, By the way, gets Jim a little short changed in what he's done for, for Nick and also also what he did for tennis. What he did I mean, in he, American tennis, yeah, amazing. Exactly. And by the way, Jimmy Arias, uh, back where he started, uh, yep. running Bull running the IMG Academy now. He is in charge. So that's interesting. We want to talk with him. So you run back from Bull You graduate with your buddies up in East Hampton High School. And then you, you went to Tennessee. Your record at the University of Tennessee is incredible. I think you lost 20 matches the whole three years you were there. Not as good as Stevie Johnson's. <laughs> what was his? Uh, it's like 7,000 and zero. I mean, Stevie's <laughs> had, he broke every record in the collegiate. But you had an incredible view. My last year I did, last year I did really well. I, only, I lost one match and then I lost in the quarters of the NCAAs. I think I was 60 something and two. That My last year I did, really well. My second to last year, my sophomore year, I think I finished second in the country and did well as well. Did but you improve in college? I did, and it was an interesting time because I had to go from wood rackets to oversized rackets at like 18 years of age. And that's where my genius college coach and lifelong friend and mentor, Mike DePalmer Sr., really came into play. He was the head coach, University of Tennessee, started at Bolletary's with Mike Nick. DePalmer, that name DePalmer is a famous name in tennis. Yep, and Mike DePalmer Jr., former, I believe top 30 or 35 yeah. pro, Michelle DePalmer played as yeah, well. Yeah, DePalmer is a big tennis family. Yeah, yeah. And, and so Mike Sr. really molded my game once I got to the big racket. That's when I kind of 
what was the word used in that article? Forsook? Yeah, forsook. I forsook my ground strokes. I didn't write that, man. <laughs> and started coming to the net a lot. But Mike Sr., along with my brother from like 17 to 27, turned me from a baseliner, which freaks people out, into a net rusher. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I know. And, and you never really if you don't even... believe me, ask Jimmy Arias. He'll vouch for it. Jimmy will vouch for how I used to play in the juniors with a slap shot forehand and a good serve. Really? Uh, yeah, that was it. That was all I had. But no, I, I love my time at University of Tennessee and Coach De Palmer and my brother do you believe, really drove the bus for me. Do you believe in college tennis? I do. Do I you believe in college tennis as a place where a player can become an elite pro? I, I do. I, I mean, I think that the you know, the proof is in the pudding. We've seen a few instances of that. John Isner really is the, you know, is on top of the mantelpiece for that. Stevie. Stevie as well. Um, and also James Blake from, you know, an era just finishing. I, I, I'm just wondering though, now with the new transition tour, what's gonna happen? Because I've been, you know, reading quite a bit about it. And, and yeah, can you explain that to our listeners? No, not in this, unless we have enough six hours. Yeah, it's I too much. Yeah. There's it's, a new thing. It's yeah. called the transition tour. Yeah, We're going to learn about it. Yeah. And we'll you, get you back to You should do a whole other podcast about that. I'm definitely that. not doing the that. The idea is to streamline and understand more clearly what a pro tennis player is and to make sure that there's still pathways and opportunities for juniors to get to pro tennis. And right now, it's to be determined how successful. I love that they're trying something. I just don't know enough to know, we don't know to have a big vote it. saying, oh, this is a disaster. This is going to be great. I'm still learning as it starts. And it's, and it's, start an, ITF it's an yes. ITF initiative? Yeah. Okay. And, it's, and it's starting out, you know, January 1. So we'll see how it goes. To be continued, we got too much stuff to get through here before, before Paul's going to get on the court. I have two two-prong question. How did you decide to turn pro? And how would you describe your pro career? I wanted to turn pro after my second year, after you my did. sophomore year in college. Because you finished, were having results? I, well, I finished number two in college tennis. I had gotten, I believe, to the quarterfinals of Newport the year before. I had a couple of, enough results to be dangerous in my own mind. And then what happened was I lost, uh, I believe, seven tournaments in a row on the tour in the last round of qualies during the summer. And I said, I'm, I was freaking out a little bit. And my college coach said, why don't you just come back to school, take the fall off and go play a couple pro tournaments and break that seven in a row. Seven, seven final matches. Final round of qualifying in, in a, a row. row. And, that and can't do a lot for it's not, your head. It's not great for a ment you know, mentally for a kid. <laughs> I can't so do the, good yeah, for so then I, I went to Europe and I played a couple tournaments. And right after I made that decision, I qualified in Basel, Switzerland and beat a top 25 player and lost to Vitas uh, Heinz Gunhart. You beat Heinz. And then I lost to Vitas seven, six in the third in the quarterfinals. But once I did that, I kind of settled down and it was a matter of, you know, let's just finish the fall, go back to school and have a big junior year and then play. And that's, so that, that was a good, that was kind of a good segue for me. But uh, look, I got to be ranked in the top 15 in the world in singles and the top five in doubles. And for a kid from East Hampton, New York, I'm proud of that. I, I think. You also, you know, you, you, you beat a lot of world number ones. You beat McEnroe. And, and do I have it right that you beat him at the U.S. Open in 86? In five? Uh, could it, uh, four sets, it would have been maybe 85. I don't know, 85, 86. You, but you that's that's a, you have a grand slam win over John yeah. McEnroe. So. Yeah, he was coming back from he had his, taken a sabbatical and this he was wasn't the, end the of same. It wasn't his same self. Um, so yeah, I mean, I won. I had a great day, and John wasn't John. And and um, but you've had but yeah, I had some good. I beat John. I beat Lendl. Edberg. I beat Edberg. Wade Uh 
Yeah, Vlander and Jimmy I beat. And, you know, of course, I'm not going to say that they all beat me 55 times and I beat them <laughs> once. But you just say you remember the wins, right? Isn't I that think the way you, you were did? either. It says on the <laughs> ATP site that you were 2-6 and six versus Mac, but then I counted three wins versus Mac. Listen, man, you're beating John McEnroe in the 80s. That's incredible. Period. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm happy with my career. I, the biggest thing is I was able to do what both of my parents said, which is when you retire and you sit down in front of a TV and you flick on the TV set and tennis comes on, that you reflect and you go, I did everything I could do to be the best that I could be, whatever that ranking was. And so I feel good about that. And you also had massive double success with Christo Van Rensburg. Who is he? Christo Van Rensburg, South African um, one of the best volleyers that I've ever seen play the game. Uh, Are you guys buddies? Yeah, we. I haven't talked to him probably in a few months now, but we stay in pretty regular contact. A great guy. And you um, guys spent, you had to spend a lot of time together. Yeah, we did. Uh, we won the Australian Open in 84, I think. I got to the finals of the U.S. Open with David Wheaton. He yeah. held me up one year as well. Um, and I've had a little bit of success with John Fitzgerald. So it's all about picking your partner. Right? Held me up. You Held gotta, me up. You got to <laughs> pick your partner. That's like Scotty. He but, holds me up. But uh, yeah, so I, look, I, I loved my playing career. It went too fast. Um, I wish I knew more then than I did about particularly about taking care of your body. I've had, you know, one of the big reasons for me to stop is I had a uh, herniated back uh, disc a couple of times. It's, and, that's a, that's a theme with a, a lot of our guests that each and every one of you guys at some point or another, the body breaks down. Yeah, and that's that, That's what I wish I knew back then what these guys know now because the longevity is incredible. They know how to take care of the body way better and we didn't. I mean, back then you guys were eating like a bowl of macaroni before they got on the court, right? You're everything now, everything is different. <laughs> and the way they do it is the big reason why athletes are able to play longer, all the sports. I mean, Novak weighs his food. If you're not weighing your food, right? If you're not weighing your food, you're not in the game. <laughs> My pizzas weigh a lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happened? So, so your body breaks down, and did you um, retire like officially, or did you just yeah, well, fade what, away? What happened to me was actually I had a, it was in a very good way. It was a blessing. Um, I had surgery on my foot and had to stop for about uh, five or six months, and and so during that so time, you had a herniated back and a foot surgery, right? And I I, I saw my uh, my mortality, athletic mortality, and I got my real estate license. Mm -hmm. I then got involved on in the player council of the ATP tour. Then I got on the board of the tour. I saw I saw that things were going to end at some point. So I kind of, my lens became a little bit more broad. And so I did those few things. And I also started coaching a little bit informally. Um, Who? I started helping Jim grab a little bit. Okay. So you, you, were, you, were, you were floating around. Yeah, floating around, coaching a little bit, coaching Ken Flack, the late, great Ken mm. Flack's young brother, Doug. Uh, Doug, you I helped Doug, Doug, Doug a little bit. And then... Um, and then the tragedy kind of happened with Tim Gully getting sick. Yeah. And I was friends with both Tim and Pete. And as I was wrapping down my career, you know, when Tim got sick, they both kind of said, you know, can you help until Pete, until Tim gets well? Pete Sampras from early in his career up until, I think it must've been 1996. That was, seven. that would have been 95. Tim Gullickson, uh, who was a player on the tour and uh, his twin with his twin brother, Tom. They had a lot of double success. 
Tim Gullickson died. He he had a brain tumor. So I think maybe yeah. it was brain cancer. Yeah. Um, and, and then you became Pete's coach. Yeah, and so we kind of all went through that together, all three of us. And Tim, what an amazing man he was. He yeah. mentored me of how to coach while yeah. he's fighting for his life. Yeah. And Pete was just amazing. I knew Pete since he was 16. And, and so that I think that helped. And all of our personalities were similar enough that everybody felt pretty comfortable. Yeah. And the whole time, Pete's trying to win for Pete and also to raise Tim's spirits. And Tim's, you know, staying involved with Pete's tennis and also mentoring me via phone calls. So it was quite an amazing time. Um, it ended up quite tragic, obviously. But, uh, you know, that was kind of the springboard to my coaching career. And I spent the next kind of seven and a half years with Pete. How many, how many slams did you guys win? Ooh. Well, he won all of them. I got to watch a lot of them from the good seats. Yeah. I would have been... 10 maybe, ten. nine or 10. That's incredible. Yeah. What did what did Pete teach you? Um, I never met anyone in my life that at 23 years of age was so clear about what they needed to do within the framework of their own personality to maximize what their life goals were. I never met someone that was that clear and committed to it. And, and Yeah, you give it an example. An example was never having huge emotional reactions to pros or cons. He would win a tournament, be happy, but he didn't cure cancer. He would lose third round to someone ranked 24, didn't waver, didn't buckle. It's what you do. Yeah. You're going to work. Exactly. But to do that, in a way that's not arrogant or blind. The ability to look through results and look through process orientation and to evaluate what happens without letting the emotional part of it drive you, yet using the emotion in a positive way to keep the passion going. That balance is very unique and very rare in human beings and even more rare in athletes and even more rare in individual athletes when it's all about you and there's no place to hide. X's and O's, how good was Pete? Um, I, I never compare eras because I don't because I believe the game is different. 100%. And I, I believe no, that, that's he's it. one of the greatest of all time. And if there was a person that I would want to play for my life, <laughs> he's on the short list. Ice water. Yeah. How good was he? Serve. The greatest second serve that is not height aided by miles in the history of the game. Why? And, and, and because I never met anyone that had more clarity about what they can do. And I'll give you a great example. Yeah. When he beat Andre Agassi in the finals of Wimbledon, yeah. his second serve speed average, I believe, was eight miles an hour, eight or nine miles an hour, faster than the entire tournament. So after the finals, when I was going through the stats, I said to him, do you know this and why? And he said, yeah, I figured it was a little faster. And I said, but the whole tournament, you didn't serve this hard, but in the finals, you did. Why and how? And he said, well, number one, because it's Andre, I have to. And number two, because I can. So to believe that. By the way, to crank your second serve 10 miles an hour harder. On center court of Wimbledon. On center court of Wimbledon. In the finals. Incredible. Yeah. And, and, and th look, that's me and him in a private room. He's not running yeah. around, but, but he just felt that. He just said, this is what I do. And I know with Andre, I got to hit big and I got to hit it's, spots. It's funny. And I know we, I can. It's funny because uh, we spoke with Brad Gilbert and he said, Pete could crank up another level in big matches like nobody else there ever was. Andre was playing out of his mind and he would just tilt up no, a whole it's a, other. I, I, that's what I mean about the pragmatism, about being so sure at a young age and yeah. understanding. And I asked him once about that, and he said, look, 
my biggest asset really isn't that I, I'm so talented. My biggest asset is that if I manage my mind, my head, I'm gonna win 80, 85% of my matches anyway, and I'll get to the semis and finals, and that's when I'll play well. And he believed that, you know? And, and that's something, you know. <laughs> that's another level. It's very hard to teach that kind of belief and feeling. <sighs> Amazing. He rarely lost big matches. Yeah, what, what's his? 14 out of 18 major finals. That's pretty good. <laughs> 14 and four in Grand Slam finals. That's pretty good. Um, you then, you know, Pete ended, and, and then you uh, you jumped in with Tim Henman. Um, what was that experience like? That was like? awesome. Tim's one of my best friends on the planet. Just one of the best guys I could picture you could you ever guys be really, around. Yeah, I could picture he you guys really getting along. Just well. loved life, worked hard, and I think one of, the, one of the best examples of what a professional is. Got to be ranked four in the world, yeah. and that's where his talent level was. You know, he was in England, and everyone thought he was a failure because he didn't win Wimbledon. Well, guess what? He was in an era of Sampras and Agassi and Goran Ivanišević, yeah. and guys that were a little bit better than him. And by the way, they slowed the courts down on him. At the wrong time. And the, the two years that he <laughs> had right his in best the chance, the, right 2001 in, and 2002, right in the pocket. 2003, that's yeah. kind of when it really started slowing down. The balls got a little heavier. But great time, great, great experiences with him. Did you learn, did you, did you take something from that relationship? Absolutely, I learned that, I mean, this was one of my biggest segues of learning in individual sports, everybody needs to be coached differently. Yeah, yeah. You have to figure out what your philosophy is and how do you get that articulated the way the players need to hear it. So Tim really helped me in that transition to understand, stick by your beliefs, but tell me different than you tell Pete or different than you tell that person because I need to hear it differently. Your time with Roger, how did it start? How did it end? Well, we started in 2010 and he was in a little bit of a, look again for him, a little bit of a lull. A Roger funk. Yeah, and you know, when we started, we uh, we had a couple meetings, a couple lunch talks, and I just kind of said, what are your goals? What you look, you've done so much already. What do you want to do? And we talked about it, and one of a couple of the result-oriented goals were to try to win a major and try to get back to number one. And he accomplished that in 2012 by winning Wimbledon, and also, uh, you know, I believe that was here he got the silver in the Olympics. Um, so he, I mean, look, Roger is so different because of who he is as a global brand and person. In today's era, is very different. But I've never met anyone that's been in that atmosphere that enjoys what he does more and accepts the responsibility of who he is and how he has to manage all of it. Because like people think, oh, it's so great. It is great, it's but so it's exhausting. It's, yeah, it sure it's is, exhausting. And, and he does it with a smile on his face. He raises his family, travels his family. His wife is amazing. Mirka is the architect behind the plan. To play that level it's, of tennis and do what this guy does um, as an international world superstar yeah you know he's incredible he's an amazing person and he, he's a he's a great tennis player but he's a better person and he has a great team around him what do you think he'd say about you in terms of what what um, kind of relationship you had those four years i i think he would say that uh we had a very collaborative uh partnership and you know we're always trying to think of ways to keep it fun and challenging and try to improve. Always look at what you do and how to maximize what you do well. And that's kind of what I've done with all my players. And when you're lucky and you have great players, um, usually that happens. So it's been a very fortunate trip for me. Um, not everything goes great. Um, 
your LTA experience. Uh, you were the you were the Davis Cup captain for England. I was a Davis Cup coach. Co oh, John, co John, not no, John you, Lloyd was the captain. Was that sort of because of Henman that you? Well, that's yeah. Tim got me involved with their federation because they were restructuring, and yeah. he said you guys should talk to Paul because <clears throat> he has a lot of great philosophies about coaching and playing at a high level, and that I had worked for the USDA for a couple years earlier on running player development. Um, and I, I really enjoyed my three and a half years there. It was, I worked with great people. For some reason, I thought you had static. I didn't, when you left, <laughs> I didn't know that. No, no, no. I mean, look, uh, there's always static, I think, <laughs> in everything you do. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't look at it like that. I got to meet a lot of great people. I got to work with a bunch of great coaches and I got to be involved in a culture that I love. I love the British culture. Um, and, and I think it's a very challenging culture in individual sports because there's a ton of pressure because there's so much history with Wimbledon there that the players um, really have struggled with expectation. So when you see someone like Andy Murray break through and do what he did, it's pretty spectacular. Um, you had a short stint with Sloane Stevens. Um, you were earlier in our show very complimentary of her, what you, know, what you think she could, she could do in 2019. Um, that seemed like another abrupt relationship. Yeah, we we only spend nine months together. Yeah, and, and it was a. She's still a dear friend, and and um, we worked together at a time where she was pretty young. I yeah, mean, she was twenty one, sure. I believe, and there was a huge amount of expectation because she had beaten Serena in Australia the previous year, and I think she was kind of struggling to figure out who she was and how she wanted to proceed. And look, it's my job to figure out which buttons to push. And that's what we talked about at the end when we stopped. I said, you know, I've tried a bunch of different buttons. I haven't been able to push the right one. So that's on me. You know, I don't look at it like she didn't listen to me or yeah. I looked at it, I, I couldn't really get through to her. And a lot of that <clears throat> was really just about where she was in her life and trying to figure out what she wanted to do and how she wanted to do it. What are some of the mistakes you've made um, um, in your career? I, I think in some, I think as a player, I listened to too many people. I think I was too insecure, and a lot of that was because of my style of play and also because I, mean, I think my personality is pretty... I try to be open and hear different ideas. With regards to style of play, if you had ever seen Taylor Dent play, um, Taylor Dent basically took the Paul Anacone playbook serve and volley on first and second serves often, and uh, chip and charging, getting to the net, mega aggressive tennis. So if guys are blowing, like Mats Volander are blowing balls by you left and right, I can, mess, I can imagine it can mess with your head. Well, the biggest thing is you gotta know what you do well and live and die by it. And that's what I tried to do. And once I started doing well that way, a lot of people, tennis people are saying, stay back, learn how to hit ground strokes better, get more solid at the baseline. And, and I did that and I watched my ranking go from 12 to 35, you know, my brother. And I said, what's wrong? I'm playing, uh, playing much better. And my brother used to say, yeah, you look much better losing now. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a classic. It's a typical Steve Anacone line and it's awesome. And he's right. <laughs> you were a much more stylish loser. Yeah, so I, I think from playing, for, for playing, I listened to too many people. I didn't trust myself enough. Um, I, I think from my coaching, I, I think that there's a lot of different mistakes. I think at times I've been too passive and I think at times I've been too thick-headed. Um, but I also think that they're just like a player, there really isn't 
you know, a destination. You have certain philosophies that you stick by and certain core beliefs and values and you try to implement them to get each player better. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that and I'm really proud and fortunate to have been involved with so many, not, not great players, but great people. From Sloan to Pete to Roger sure. to Tim to, Incredible. you know, I've just had so many people that have been really helpful to me. Uh, moving into our fourth set, uh, we call this the 10 ball scramble. It's word association. We do not do a deep dive. Okay. I say the thing and then you just say what you, the first thing that comes into your mind. Got it. Melbourne. Sun. Kuyang. History. Your best win. McEnroe. Where? US Open. Where your worst loss? I don't know. There you go. That's me. Forget the bad things. Your favorite court? Center court, Wimbledon. That's been a big, every, every, every single person says Center Court. The Cathedral. That's it. Everyone loves it. Um, your favorite player? Me. Growing up, did you have a favorite player? Connors. You love Connors. Yeah. Why? Unconditional competitor. Your favorite serve? Sampras. Favorite volley? Edberg. Favorite forehand? Federer. Favorite backhand? Agassi. Wow. You and Brad Gilbert like kindred spirits, man. It's interesting. And on-court coaching. Get rid of it. Why? Tennis is an individual sport. Celebrate mano y mano. Off-court coaching. The, the, the shenanigans going on in the boxes. Every player. Find better ways to monitor and continue to warn. When or, did it come? Like, Pete and Andre never stared at their box every single point. No, Roger didn't much either. Look, it's emotional and it's passionate, you know? So no matter how stoic you are, it's tough to sit on your hands at four all in the fifth set in the semis of Wimbledon. And, and a lot of it, it depends on who you're with. You know, very rarely did Pete look up for encouragement or need it. Very rarely does Roger. Taylor Fritz at 21 years of age needs a fist pump once in a while. I don't mind it, but the thing I do mind, and this is where I put my self-protection uh, module up, when you guys start getting yelled at for stuff that's going on in the court. <laughs> you know, when, when you get yelled at from your players, that, that becomes a little bit challenging. <laughs> I just think it's tough. I mean, it's hard. Players are under a lot of pressure. They want uh, perfection. They want immediate results. But guess what? Everything doesn't always work. You got to figure it out. And that's my biggest mantra about coaching is to try to give the players the best tools possible to manage adversity when the most pressure's on. And it's up to them. That's why I think mano a mano needs to be celebrated. This is our fifth and final set. Uh, we call this king of the court. Basically, if you were the king of tennis, how would you do it? First of all, you know, you're really one of the, culprit's the wrong word, but you are one you of the- that. No, 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 but you're one <laughs> of the, you, you are a, a participant in this sport in a way that is all encompassing. You uh, are a broadcaster, you are a coach, you have investments in the sport in many different ways. You guys are all trying to make money and, 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 and live and, and, and be involved. But my question to you is, does there need to be some kind of oversight? Oversight? I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how to interpret that. Well, you know, Roger owns the Labor Cup. The ITF owns the Davis Cup. Well, well look, Cup. I, I, can, I can take a deep Broadcasters dive. Broadcasters are coaching. Patrick McEnroe is running the U.S. You know. Right. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's a very conflicted landscape, um, but I think it goes hand in hand with what tennis is. I mean, let's be honest, what is it? It's an individual, global sport that has 
umpteen governing bodies that has umpteen different sets of rules and regulations. So it comes with conflict. It comes with lack of clarity. It's individual and it's international. It's not the NFL. It's not the NBA. It's global. And it's not the Los Angeles Lakers. It's not the Dallas Cowboys. It's not the New York Yankees. It's nah, Sampras, man, but... it's Federer, it's Serena, it's individuals. So it becomes really difficult to have a very streamlined landscape. Well, like, you can't say to Roger, you can't participate in other business ventures. Well, you, I mean, I guess you could. I mean, I guess you could, but I, I don't know how you manage it. And I don't know legally, I don't know how legally how you do things like that. Do you think the system's broken? Do you think there's problems? No, I think it can be, I think, can be better. If it's broken, then there would be no function. Broken to me means absolutely no optimistic outcomes of what they do. I think it could be more clear, it could be more simplified and more streamlined, but it's not. So for me, you know, the idea is what can we do within the construct of what we have to make it better, more manageable, more clear, and ultimately easier for more people to play for longer periods of time. You're the king. What are some things that could improve? You unify or find different ways to unify or streamline the governance of the different entities. Grand Slams, ITF, ATP, WTA, and you look at all of the different governing bodies, find a way that they become one in as many areas as they can so we live under the same umbrella and then therefore can have a bigger impact and probably have a greater likelihood of sharing revenue, which could then potentially trickle down to grassroots and get more rackets in hands. My man, uh, have a terrific trip to Australia. It's so good to see you. And uh, thank you for uh, taking us to school today. Always a pleasure, my friend. So while we have your attention, here's the deal with the giveaway. Our good friends at the Invesco series have donated two VIP packages to their upcoming event January 26th at the Newport Beach Tennis Club. If you want to try to return Andy Roddick's serve or knife a volley against Tommy Haas, you can do that as well as... Watch these guys play. Marty Fish will be there. James Blake is going to be there. It's an awesome event. And, you know, we're excited for the opportunity to give this to our fans. So, listen, all you got to do to enter is contact us via email or spread the word about us. Tag us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Or if you're too tired after a long day on the courts, just retweet or repost one of our posts. And we'll automatically enter you to win. Info at underreviewtennis.com is our email. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Good luck and tell your friends. Huge thank you to Paul Anacone for going mano y mano with me. I must admit, I looked to my box a couple times, but Scotty is not the fist pumping type. He's more old school. Thank you to everyone at the USTA Training Center in Carson. Good luck with your season, guys and gals. We're looking forward to seeing you in Australia and beyond. I want to thank everyone for listening and for spreading the word. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back before you know it with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.